Thank you so much, Dan. That beautiful, beautiful song. Thank you, choir and instrumentalists, for beautiful worship today. I was away last week preaching at the Tallowood Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, and that was a great opportunity. I understand that Reed Reedus and Larry Payne did a great job in my absence, and I will tell you, there's nothing like being home, and I'm glad to preach for you today. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know we're going through a sermon series from 1 Samuel. The title of this morning's sermon is The Striped Leopard, 1 Samuel 9 and 10. You've heard it before. You can't teach an old dog new tricks or... Leopards never change their spots, right? Maybe we think something like this. He won't ever change. He's been like that as long as I've known him. For some reason, we operate with the idea that men and women will always be who they already are. That men and women will always be who they already are. Somehow, in our narrow equation of consistency of character, we miss the transforming power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has, can, and will continuously change, transform, and dynamically influence human beings and their behavior. When the wind of the Spirit blows, things change. Who let the donkeys out of the barn? That was a question. I don't know if somebody left the gate open. I've been there. I don't know if the donkeys kicked down the restraints, but I can tell you a certainty that Kish's donkeys were gone. Kish was Saul's father, and Kish's donkeys got out. Hey, son, go get a servant, his father said to Saul, and go and get my donkeys. They traversed the territories of the tribe of Benjamin and Ephraim, but there was no sign of the lost beasts of burden. They didn't find them. When they finally reached the land of Zuf, Saul said to the servant, Hey, let's go back. I bet my father's not worried about the donkeys anymore. I bet he's worried about his son and his servant. Let's go back. Enough's enough. Hey, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, said the servant. I've got an idea how we can find your daddy's donkeys. There's a man of God in this city. And if we go and ask the man of God, he knows things other people don't know. He will tell us where the donkeys are. It'll all turn out okay. Well, I don't have anything to pay him. I don't have any money to pay the prophet, said Saul. Even our bread is gone. We're out of money. We're out of food. It's time to go back. Now, wait a minute. I've got a little bit, he said. I've got a fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God. He'll tell us where the donkeys are, and we'll be on our way. So they go to the city where the man of God was to be found. They saw some women going out to draw water from the well. Now, if you read your Bible much at all, you know we've got a common theme of 
meeting the women, going to the well to draw water. Need I say, Rebecca and Rachel and Zipporah, and even in the New Testament, the woman at the well. How many times in Scripture, that's the ones off the top of my head, women going to the well, and they have an interaction. God uses the women at the well. Is the seer here? Saul asked. Hurry, hurry, say the women. He's straight ahead of you. It's the day of the sacrifice, and he'll be coming out of the city as you're going into the city. You're sure to meet him. Go right now. They won't eat until he gets there. He has to say the blessing before they eat. They'll go and hurry, and you'll catch him. And as they're going into the city, Samuel the seer, the prophet, is coming out of the city, going to the high place for the sacrifice. First thing I want you to see in this story of the lost donkeys is God is at work. God is at work. Look at chapter 9 and, and verse 16. The, the Lord revealed to Samuel, saying, verse 16, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And ye shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. God is at work. Notice they're still God's people. Even after our, our hard chapter, when they demand a king, he says three times, my people, my people, my people. Verse 17. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. A fourth time, my people. God is at work. Now remember, from inside of Saul, from Saul's perspective, daddy's donkeys got loose. And all he's doing is traversing across the countryside looking for some lost donkeys. And while he's doing the little thing, God is doing the big thing. Did you notice that language, I will send to you? God says to Samuel, I'm sending Saul to you. Saul thinks when he makes his choices to the left, to the right, over this hill, around that one, that he's going his way. But in reality, he's going God's way. Saul is doing the little thing, looking for the lost animals. And God is doing the big thing, picking a king over his people. God, even we don't see it, God is at work. Samuel coming out, Saul going into the city. Kind sir, Saul asked, not knowing he's speaking to Samuel. Do you know where the seer is? Verses 18. I am the seer, he says. Verse 19. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys, hey, he's a prophet, he knows. As for your donkeys, don't worry about that. The donkeys have already gone home. And for whom? This is last language. 
And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? For whom are things more desirable in Israel than for you? So, the irony of this story is that as God as it work, Saul is not the key actor. God, through Samuel, is playing the major role. Saul is not the actor. Saul is acted upon. God and Samuel doing the acting. Saul, thinking he's looking for lost donkeys in his own mind, in his own volition, is actually being sent by God. I will send the man to you. As he hunts for donkeys, God is doing the work. Look what he says in verse 17. Here is the man. This is the one I was talking to you about. There's no uncertainty. There's no ambiguity. There is no confusion. This is the one. God has chosen Saul, tall, handsome. This is the one. Get your mind off the donkeys. God seems to be saying to Saul, for the desire of Israel, that is the role of king, is yours. It's an old story, and some of our oldest members might remember reading Reader's Digest in the 1940s, the late 1940s. an article entitled, It Happened on the Brooklyn Bridge Subway. It Happened on the Brooklyn Bridge Subway. On January the 10th, 1948, just two years after the end of WW2. Marshall Sternberger got on the train in the Brooklyn subway. He got on a train that day in 1948 that he'd never ridden before. That wasn't the usual line that he took to work, but he'd gone to visit a sick friend that morning, and so he had to get on a different line. And he was about to board the subway train. It was completely full. He almost had to get off, but all of a sudden, another passenger realized he was about to miss his station. He got up, and he ran off the train. And so, Marcel took the one and only seat left on this new train that he had never taken before. Next to him was a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger had been born in Hungary, and though he wouldn't ordinarily strike up a conversation on the subway, he thought, well, the combination of both knowing Hungarian, it might be unique. And so in Hungarian, he said to the stranger on the subway, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your newspaper while you read. The Hungarian man was shocked to hear his own language spoken on the New York subway. He was taken back. And during that half-hour ride, they began to share and to talk in Hungarian. They began to chat. What's the chances? Sternberger's companion began to tell his tragic life's story. His name was Poshkin. He'd been a law student before WW2 started. He had hope for a family and for a future. He was eventually assigned to a labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. 
Later, he was actually captured by the Russians and given the job of burying the German dead. And after the war was over, on foot, he literally walked hundreds of miles to return home to Debrecen, Hungary. And when he got to the apartment where his family lived, his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters, he found there were, there were strangers in that apartment. So he went further, hope against hope, that he went to where he and his wife lived. And again, there were strangers there in Debrecen. Finally, he found some old friends there in the Hungarian city, and they said that his whole family was dead. That they had been taken to Auschwitz by the Nazis and presumed all to be killed in the gas chamber. Stunned by the news, the war was over. Having walked hundreds of miles, a man fled Hungary, which had become a funeral land for him. He went to Paris and finally at last immigrated to the United States in October 1947. As Sternberger listened to this Hungarian man's tale, it sounded kind of odd, kind of familiar to him. Then he remembered why. He had recently met a young woman through a mutual friend who was also from Debrecen, Hungary, and she had been taken to Auschwitz, where she was transferred out of Auschwitz to work for a German munitions factory, and all of her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. After she was liberated by the Americans, she had been brought to New York on the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger had been so moved by her story, and he being one of the few who could speak Hungarian, he had written down her name, address, and phone number to get back with her, to comfort her, to help her through her grief and loneliness. He, he thought, is this possible? Could there be some connection between that Hungarian woman and this Hungarian man so many miles, 4,451 miles away from Debrecen? When he reached his station, the subway came to his station, Sternberger didn't get off. The story was too good. He looked to the Hungarian man and said, is there any chance that your name is Bella. The man looked like he'd seen a ghost. Yes, how did you know my first name? Sternberger fumbled in his address book, and he found it, and he said, is there any chance that your wife's name is Maria? Why, why yes, it is. Yes, it is, Poshkin replied. Sternberger said, you and I are getting off at the next station. He didn't explain why. He took Poshkin to a nearby phone booth. He looked up. He called Maria. He asked her the address of where she'd lived in Debrecen. She, he asked Poshkin, was this your address? Yes. Now dumbfounded, not understanding anything, he said, a miracle's about to happen. Pick up this phone and talk to your wife. What's the chances? The story goes on about him putting Poshkin on a cab to go to the address of his wife, Maria, and the emotional reunion that happened between the Poshkins. Years away 
4,451 miles away, the chances for the Poshkins to meet up, each thinking the other is dead in Brooklyn, New York, years later, by the one man on the whole planet who could speak Hungarian, who had met them both, the one human being amongst the millions who could combine this wife and this husband who each thought each other was dead, happened to be on a new train in the one seat on the one day? In the little things in our lives, God is at work. Coincidence? <laughs> Mathematically, statistically, impossible. Saul is simply out looking for the donkeys, and yet God is orchestrating God's way in this story. When Samuel says to Saul, is there any family that has a better place in Israel than you? Saul catches on. I mean, he's just out looking for his daddy's donkeys. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm from the little tribe, the least tribe of Benjamin. And in the tribe of Benjamin, I'm from the least family in the tribe of Benjamin. Don't go talking to me like that. And yet Samuel just keeps treating Saul as if he's already king. Come here, sit at the table. Ladies, this is the one. They bring out the best piece of the meat of the sacrifice. He has the seat of the king, the portion of the king. He's treated like the king. He's overwhelmed by all the things that are happening around him. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? The use of oil in the Old Testament is a symbol of the presence of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 61, Zechariah 4. The oil is the anointing by the Spirit. Just so you'll know, you're not just out looking for donkeys, but you're the new king of Israel. I'm going to give you three signs, he says in chapter 10. Verse 2, he says the first one, you'll meet two men who give you assurances about the lost donkeys. Look at 10-2. Would you go for me today? Then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zaxai, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Here's a second sign he gives in verse 3. It gives him, three men will appear to you and give you food. And then the third sign there in verse 6. You will come upon a band of prophets, and you yourself will join them in prophecy. The second thing I want you to see is not only is God at work, but, but number two, God changes everything. God changes everything. Look at verse 5, chapter 10. 
Afterward, you will come to the hill, hill of God, and the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come here to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. It really does sound like a band of prophets with all these instruments, doesn't it? Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and you will be changed. I want you to notice the verb, you will be changed into another man. Look at verse 9. And then it, it happened when he turned back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. God changes everything. Saul, you will be another man with a changed, said twice, verse 6, verse 9, changed heart, God will change you. Don't ever let anyone tell you you cannot change. Oh, by your own power, your own will, your own might, you'll fail to be sure, but by the power and the will and the might of God, He can change everything about you. With God, a, a leopard might not only change his spots, he might get stripes in God's economy. God has been and is in the business of changing people. God is at work, and God changes us. I got a confession. It was years ago. A man came down the aisle saying he wanted to change everything about his life. I knew a little bit of his history. I thought this is one more move in a cycle to manipulate the church, his family, and God. I went through with the motions. You bet, bud, let's do it. But in my heart, I truly felt like he was acting. It wasn't anything real. Man, was I wrong. I've since done his funeral. And I can tell you on that day, when the pastor had his doubts, that man and God were changing everything in his life. All of his behavior changed. His vocabulary changed. The way he did life changed. He was here every time we unlocked the doors. If I could have said we're meeting Thursday night at 2 a.m., he'd have been here waiting for me when I got here. It was that way for years after he came down the aisle. He became one of those persons in my life that began to teach me things about obedience and excitement, the Spirit of God, and the power of God ministered to me, ministered to my family, ministered to the church family. He became one of the most like men in our church. On the day he was changing, your pastor thought, yeah, right, bud. And when I did his funeral, he was, to me, 
a spiritual giant. There was nothing in his history, I mean, in my defense, there was nothing in his past behavior that would lead to one to conclude humanly possible he would be this different person forever till death. But he was totally different. How is it that you and I have become convinced through the years that the power of God Almighty who took dust and created man cannot change men and women's hearts? The message here, verse 9 and verse 6, is God changed everything about Saul. You will be another man. This man was changed in relationship with his church family. He was changed in relationship with his children, his family. Everybody noticed something is radically different about him. At first, I think we all waited for it to play out, for the excitement to wane, for the seed to be on the shallow soil. But it wasn't. It was deep and it was well-rooted and that day dwelt by the Spirit of God. He became a different man. So maybe on Monday you'll be out chasing donkeys, going for a printer cartridge, getting some more paper, getting a sip at the water fountain, going to pick up your coffee, You'll be making all the little decisions that seem to mean absolutely nothing, but you don't know. You might be on the one train seat in Brooklyn. You might be out looking for the donkeys, but God is leading you for that divine appointment. And don't ever be like me. Don't ever doubt God's ability to radically change somebody. I'm cured, I'm fixed. God can do it. He did it with Saul, he did it with my friend, and if you let him, God can do it with you. Let us pray. Well, God, maybe there's some men and women you want to change today. People who've insisted on being in charge of their own lives, and today is their day to come and say that Jesus is Lord, that they're no longer ruler of their own realm. Maybe there's someone today who needs to come and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I need to be a man or a woman changed by the power and the grace of God. God, maybe we need to have our eyes open tomorrow. When we're out chasing the donkeys, those divine appointments, maybe indeed through our own choices, you are sending us your way to do your work. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.